You're listening to Jewish Matters with Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Sunset Series. We have a special guest tonight, Michael Berman, who will be speaking about Aliyah and entrepreneurship, a view from the inside. And Michael's Aliyah story is a very interesting one. I'll let him tell it to you. But an introduction about his uh, business background, he uh, is an entrepreneur and investor who works with a high-potential development and early commercial stage medical companies. He currently serves on the board of 11 companies, amongst them Cardiosonic, ClearCut, PharmaCentra, and a whole bunch of others. He uh, has served on the boards since 1970 of companies that have collectively raised a total of $900 million. And he helped co-found a number of countries, companies, including Velocimed, Lutonix, uh, Bridgepoint, Rebiotics, and uh, served on many other boards. Michael, uh, very much having you, appreciate having you here tonight, especially since from your CV, it appears you're a very busy person. And uh, also, I want to mention, uh, Michael is a fellow Cornelian, Go Big Red. We overlapped for a year there together, but did not know each other until we met over coffee a few months ago. And uh, thank you very much for being here. Shanna Fold, our host, will be uh, speaking to Michael. And so, Shanna, I turn it over to you. A bit of background on you to get us started. How did you get to Israel and how did you get started in, in your business endeavors? Sure. I, I grew up in upstate New York, um, was involved in Young Judea uh, as a kid, went to the Young Judea summer camps and the Young Judea year course program, which is um, what led to me making Aliyah in 1979, uh, when Israel was a very different kind of a country than it is today. Um, and back in the 19, early 80s, that's actually when I got involved in the medical device business. I worked for a small medical device company in Israel at the time. And then in 1984, I decided to get an MBA. Uh, I studied at Tel Aviv University for a short while and then decided to go back to the U.S. to get an MBA. My wife wanted to do her postdoctoral fellowship in biology. And instead of moving back to Israel after the postdoc and the MBA, we moved to Minneapolis, uh, which is kind of like Israel, not, not exactly, but kind of like Israel, uh, where we uh, pursued careers. My wife is an academic. She's a professor in biology. I built a career in the medical device business. We raised two sons. And when our younger son was finishing high school, we looked at each other and said, you know what? We don't actually have to stay in Minneapolis anymore. You know, the, the, the anchors are lifting. And after a period of about, oh, maybe a couple of years of grinding on it, we decided to move back to Israel. We already had an apartment that we had bought as a second residence, as a vacation residence in Tel Aviv back in the early 2000s. And eight years ago, we decided to move back to Israel. And over the last eight years, I've shifted my portfolio of private companies that I'm an investor in and on the board of from being a portfolio of American medical device companies to being a portfolio of Israeli medical device companies. And my wife moved from the University of Minnesota to Tel Aviv University. And our younger son also moved to Israel. He made Aliyah about seven years ago, served in the army and is now building a, a solar energy company called Kedma Solar. And we have another son who lives in New York. Uh, so that's kind of the general uh, background. Great. Uh, I went to school at SUNY Oswego. So I'm dying to know what part of upstate New York you're from. I was born in Tompkins County Hospital in Ithaca, New York, and grew up in Ithaca. My father was a professor of music at Ithaca College, and then I was a townie and went to Cornell. Uh, and, uh, and then I came back to get an MBA at Cornell in 1984. Uh, the state of New York is so beautiful, and I always tell everyone that there is a bounty. There's bountiful beauties in New York. There's so many places to visit. Um, you grew up in a beautiful part of the state. So I, 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 there's a story within our family that when you tell people where you're from and you say Ithaca, they have one of a few different answers. Sometimes they say, oh, Utica. And you say, no, Ithaca. <laughs> Sometimes they, you say Ithaca and they say, oh, Cornell University. And you say, yep, Cornell University. That's correct. And sometimes you say Ithaca and they go, oh, Ithaca gun. 
because it was a gun manufacturer in Ithaca called Ithaca Gun Manufacturer. <laughs> and this is a oh. legend within our family. And many years ago, we were out on a, a, a camping trip with my sons in Yellowstone. And I had told them this story years before. And we get onto the boat in Yellowstone Lake. And the guy who's driving the boat says, where are you from? And I say, I'm from Ithaca. And he looks at me and says, oh, Ithaca Gun. And both of my kids almost fainted on the spot. <laughs> Well, I'm a city girl, and I'm from Queens, New York, so I know nothing about Ithaca Gun, but um, I am going to ask you next question. What was the back and forth like for you between the United States and Israel? Um, how, was, how, how has it been for you managing that personally, professionally, culturally? Yeah, it's a great question. And I remember a conversation I had with my father many, many, many years ago when I was uh, uh, in my 20s living in Israel. And he shared with me a fear that he had that I would never feel at home in Israel or in the United States, uh, that I, I would always feel like an outsider in both places. Uh, and after living in Israel for five years, then back in the U.S. and back in Israel and back and forth, I um, have shared with him many years later that not only was he wrong, but he was exactly dead wrong. I actually feel at home in both places. Uh, it's not that I feel not at home in both places. I feel very much at home in both places. Um, when, uh, but, but that, of course, is an individual thing. I mean, each person has their own reaction to place and language and culture and whatever it may be. Uh, in my uh, case, I, uh, both my wife and I are fluent in Hebrew. I conduct almost all my business in Hebrew. Um, uh, you know, I'm familiar with Israeli, you know, culture and the arts and sports. And, you know, we've got a lot of friends, many of whom are Anglos, but some of whom are not. Uh, and when I'm in the U.S., of course, you know, most of my friends are Jewish, not all, but many. Uh, and I actually feel very much at home in both places. The logistic challenge uh, is, for us was, uh, was, was and is not simple. Uh, I've got uh, two elderly parents who live in Atlanta where both of my brothers live. Um, that you know, complicates life a lot. I've got a son and two granddaughters who live in New York. Uh, that complicates life a lot. Pre-COVID, it was uh, not a problem for either my wife or I. We were both very comfortable traveling a lot, both for work and for family reasons. So uh, I, you know, for the last, I don't know, a number of years, probably eight, nine years, have traveled back and forth between Israel and the U.S. every couple months. Um, and, uh, you know, there, there's a toll that that takes just physically, but uh, we're, it, it works fine for us. Now with COVID, it's a lot more difficult and who knows how long that will last. Um, but uh, for us, it has not been uh, really a challenge. We did have a period uh, where we owned uh, a residence in Minneapolis and a residence in Tel Aviv. And we really were splitting our time half and half between the two for about six months. And we found that to be not sustainable. Uh, you really have, to, in our view, for us at least, we kind of had to pick one place to live. It wasn't possible to live a full life if you were trying to split it equally. Because in that case, we found that we were always not around for whatever, you know, we wanted to be there for. And so we made our choice to have Israel be our home. And we sold our place in Minneapolis. And we traveled back and forth a lot. But uh, Israel was our home. Uh, what advice would you give somebody who is trying to establish themselves here in Israel and probably is getting is just getting started or is early on in their career, they don't have the cash to be flying back and forth between the U.S. and, and Israel. And um, they're, they're thinking to themselves, I'm trying to make it here in Israel. I want to I work here. I want to live here. Um, but I, 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 can't, I can't shake this American business plan that I had for myself. Or I can't shake the feeling that I should be with my family. Or... Um, or can I really hack it here? Can I really make money here? Can I really buy a house here? All of these kinds of questions that somebody might have who is an immigrant. Sure. Well, uh, it's an excellent question and the only answers can come from within. Uh, these are not questions that can be answered by somebody else for you. Uh, that doesn't mean that you can't learn from the experiences of others. You certainly can learn and be informed by the experiences of others. But at the end of the day, these are intensely personal uh, uh, decisions. You know, 
you know, family, career, significant other, uh, identity, you know, these are at the core of who we are. Um, my own experience uh, and observation of others, I would say, is that uh, the people who end up, uh, Anglos, uh, who move to Israel, make Aliyah, who end up staying, end up staying because they uh, create a career for themselves that is meaningful and or they uh, find a significant other uh, who is <clears throat> uh, important to them and that anchors them in one place, or sometimes the other, but anchors them in one place. Uh, and that the original motivations and uh, reasons for moving to Israel, which are frequently ideology, sometimes it's you know, running away from something, sometimes it's adventure, sometimes it's, you know, it can be a lot of different things. Those are one set of reasons, but, the, but if you think about the anchors that keep you in a place, those anchors are community, jobs, family, people, significant others. Those are the things that keep you in a place. So if, uh, and so really what you should do is you should work on those things. You should, you know, work on finding that relationship that is meaningful to you, finding that community that is meaningful to you, finding that job that is meaningful to you, that career that's meaningful to you. And if you, and those things take time. None of those things happen quickly. All of those things have, a, have, have an arc of many years uh, to create that. Uh, it's not like when you go to college that first day and you walk into your dormitory and, you know, one week later, you're best friends with all these people. You walk out of your dorm room and it's instant community. And it's, you know, you don't have to worry about a job because you've got a job. It's called being a student. Nobody's worried about a significant other. You're worried about the opposite, having a relationship, but not a, too much of a significant other. And suddenly, you know, you're in your 20s and you're on your own, creating community, finding that significant other, building that career, finding friends, building that community, that is an investment of time and effort. It does not happen by itself. And you have to have the effort and the patience to go along with all those things. Uh, and uh, for a lot of people, it does work. Uh, my son, for example, who's in his 20s, uh, has been in Israel for seven years now and it's worked very well for him. He's got a great community. He got married. He's got a great business he's creating. I have a niece uh, who lives around the corner from us in Tel Aviv, same story. But I see a lot of their friends and not all the friends stay. Not all the friends get that job or that career or that significant other or that community and then end up either impatient. It would have come, but they're not patient enough with it. Or uh, it came, but not good enough. Or sometimes the family uh, back in the U.S. pulls. I mean, it's just these are very, very complicated and personal uh, kinds of issues at the, at the at the end of the day. So I'm rambling on here a little bit, but that those are my general thoughts. I think that's great advice. I think patience is is certainly something that you need to have sabzanut in in Israel. Something that we hear a lot. Um, going to ask a very blunt, curt question coming from a New Yorker, coming from an American: Is there money to be made in Israel? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, uh, there's a. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, I mean, you know, it, 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 most of the money to be made in Israel by non-Israelis, non-Israeli born, uh, is in the, what I would call the Western facing part of the economy or the high tech industry, uh, which is basically, those are global businesses. Um, okay. you know, if, you work, if you work for a, a company whose uh, customers and suppliers are all in Israel, uh, it's it's a lot harder to break in as a uh, a newcomer, uh, but if you're working for a company where the, the the customers and the markets are global, and you're working with Korean customers and German customers and Americans and Brazilians and whatever else, then you know the fact that you speak English is a huge uh, advantage. And uh, I, my advice in terms of um, you know career. Uh, obviously, it has to. It depends upon what you are interested in doing. If you want to be a teacher or a social worker, then these comments are irrelevant because I'm not aware of any, you know, high tech social worker company kind of thing. That means you're going to be a social worker, uh, which is a great calling, a great profession. But it, uh, but the whole high tech uh, uh, stuff is kind of irrelevant to that kind of a career path. But if you are looking at uh, a career either in in business or in technology or something like that. My advice is to look very closely at the company that you want to join and uh, uh, don't so much focus in on the job that they're going to offer you or the starting salary that they're going to offer you, but focus in on the growth potential of that company. If that company has high growth potential, 
then you should give it high consideration uh, for joining. And if you think that that company probably doesn't have the best business model or the best technology and won't necessarily succeed, give it low consideration. And I say that because I've observed, uh, I, I had the good fortune in 1986 of joining a startup company that grew from zero to $300 million a year in revenue over eight years. And all the people who were involved in that, in that company, growing from 30 people to 1,000 people, grew and built careers and built wealth that would have been unimaginable. And frankly, if those same people with the great job that every individual had done had been working at a company that was a low growth company, they would not have developed that same kind of career, learned those things, uh, or made the wealth that they did. A lot of it has to do with you know, being in the right company or the right place at the right time. I love that answer. Thank you so much. Um, at what point do you, or do you, let go of being an American in Israel? Uh, me personally, never. Uh, I'm very uh, uh, proud of, uh, you know, my American, uh, just like other uh, uh, immigrant groups are. You know, when I talk to my friends who are from Morocco, you know, Moroccan uh, or, or Persian or, uh, you know, Russian, you know, whatever it is, everybody has multiple identities. And uh, you know, there's a colleague that I work with who came from Russia in the early 90s. Uh, and he is extremely proud of the kind of the Russian-ness that he has. And he spoke, speaks Russian to his kids and his grandkids. And he's very proud of that Russian heritage, uh, not necessarily the Russian political history and communism and Stalin, <laughs> but the Russian culture. Uh, and the same thing with uh, people from other ethnic groups. And I see no reason why I shouldn't, uh, why I should abandon uh, the things that I love about America. I, I have a Super Bowl party every uh, uh, Monday morning after the Super Bowl, 7 a.m. We record it and a bunch of friends come over and we have a good time. Actually, we've had some Israelis join us too, because a lot of Israelis who spend time in the U.S. fall in love with American football, which is one of my guilty pleasures. It's a terrible sport. It should be illegal, but as long as they're not, it's not illegal, I'll keep watching it. <laughs> uh, and, you know, similarly, you know, I follow American politics. I still pay American taxes, um, uh, you know, a, a bit on top of Israeli taxes. Um, and I don't feel any need. I guess this gets back to the answer that I gave you originally, that I feel very much at home in both places, uh, as opposed to alienated in both places. I feel very much uh, at home. Uh, so in addition to watching, you know, uh, an occasional American football game, I've actually learned to enjoy watching an occasional European Champions League soccer game, which is not an Israeli thing, but it's certainly not an American thing. So would you say, when you say that you feel comfortable, very comfortable in both places, would you say that that's very mental? Is that something that you are coaching yourself or that you feel um, just inside? It's not something that it's, uh, I think about a lot. It's kind of like asking the fish, how's the water? And the fish says, what water? You know, it's just kind of like who I am. And that's, uh, uh, I mean, it's not like I walk around with an American flag all the time and I'm singing the Star Spangled Banner, but I am an American. I speak Hebrew with an American accent. It is who I am. I've got a lot of Anglo friends and I don't, that, I think that's great. I don't have any problem with it. Great. Um, what is it like to navigate an office or a board, a, a room full of directors, cross-culture. Um, and and yeah. what was it like for you? Try to, think, try to remember what it was like for you when you were in our place. And when I say our, I mean the young people who have been here for a couple of years and are trying to um, climb the ladder and they are navigating their social differences. Sure. Uh, well, I, I don't, at, at the risk of being trite, um, you know, there are obviously differences between Israeli culture and American culture, and Israeli, <laughs> American business uh, uh, and, and Israeli business. Uh, but the, at the end of the day, at least in business, 99% of it is the same. Uh, if it's an Israeli medical device company developing a, uh, a less invasive mitral valve uh, replacement uh, device, uh, you know, what you have to do in order to be successful is 99% the same as what an American company would have to do to be successful in terms of the development challenges, the clinical trial challenges, fundraising challenges, team building challenges, 
um, you know, uh, uh, commercialization challenges, selling the company, working with bankers, you know, the, everything is essentially the same. What's different is the uh, kind of Israeli mindset in Israeli culture is different and that there are differences between uh, Americans and Israelis. Israelis tend to be more direct, more brusque, less diplomatic. Uh, Americans tend to be diplomatic to the point of a fault where at the end of a conversation you think, well, what the hell did they say? What were they really trying to say? What was, I heard the words, but what was the music? What was really going on there? Uh, and I find myself frequently being the person in between doing the kind of translating from Hebrew English to English English. Uh, it happened to me just last week. I was on a, a call with a Swiss, a prospective Swiss investor, Swiss venture capital fund that was looking at investing in one of the companies in my portfolio. And after the, we had this hour long Zoom call, went through the whole presentation and the slides and all that. And after we were done, the CEO, who's an Israeli fellow, he's a, a very experienced uh, and co competent CEO, uh, uh, called me up and said, what the hell did they say? What did they mean? What did they really mean when they said X, Y, and Z? You know, because it's like the words entered, but the meaning behind the words escaped him because it was too diplomatic. It was too subtle. It was too inferred and not explicitly stated. Uh, and so I said, well, here's what I heard, and I shared it with him. And the next day, we were on the call with our American investment banker, uh, and he asked the same question, what did you hear? And she came back and basically said what I said, you know, that that's what she heard, was the same as what I heard. And it's almost as if he wasn't on the conversation, because he understands English very well, but the subtleties were just kind of going over his head. So at the same time, that's kind of one story. Another anecdote is, uh, uh, there's an American CEO of an Israeli company that I'm on the board of, uh, who is kind of diplomatic and nuanced and all the rest. And one of the first board meetings he comes to, you know, two of the board members start getting into a disagreement an argument. And it's like the fur is flying and these guys are yelling at each other and screaming at each other. Like they're in, you know, shook a Carmel and you know, they're, they're whatever, you know, it, it's really knocked down drag out. And then afterwards, it's as if nothing happened. And after the board meeting, the CEO, American CEO, calls me and says, what the hell was that all about? What happened? What were these guys, you know, so he's like, are they going to kill each other? I said, no, no, no. That's just the typical Israeli mix it up, disagreement, argument. They're in violent agreement, violent disagreement. And afterwards, they'll forget about it. Don't worry about it. And he said, no, no, those words, that those words can't be unsaid. I said, no, actually, believe me, in Israel, not only can those words be unsaid, but they probably weren't even heard in the first place. Don't worry about it. And sure enough, it was just a little minor blip between these two board members. So those kinds of cultural things come up all the time. Uh, but it's in the context, as I said, which I always remind people, which is that 99% of what you do is exactly the same with an Israeli company as an American company, at least in the business I'm in. Um, what cultural uh, differences would you say you've picked up um, along the way? Maybe you've accepted some of them and you find yourself sort of different now than you were 20 years ago when you were first coming to the country. Uh, well, when I'm speaking with Israelis, I tend to be more direct, uh, more to the point. Uh, I want to make sure that the point that I'm trying to make is not lost uh, in the sea of subtlety. Um, uh, but even though I try, I generally <laughs> not pointed and direct enough because all my Israeli friends tell me, oh, you're being too American. You're being too polite. Um, uh, I guess at the end of the day, it's hard to do a personality transplant. Uh, you, know, you are who you are and you can kind of buff it up at the edges or get a little more edgy or a little more less edgy, but you know, you are who you are. So, uh, you know, that, that's one thing I've consciously tried to do is to make sure that when I'm communicating to Israelis that I'm clear uh, and pointed and direct uh, so that it's not lost, uh, lost on them. Um, uh, uh, the uh, uh, in, in in the U.S. I haven't made any uh, adjustments. I guess I guess the one adjustment I've made when I'm in the U.S. unconsciously is that when I'm driving and I get to a four-way stop sign in Minnesota, I don't sit around waiting for ten seconds for the other guy to go first. I just wait and go. <laughs> I've lost my patience to wait for other drivers. Wow, big changes. 
Big changes. Um, <laughs> so I'm going to, I have two more questions for you, quick one, quick ones. And then I'm going to let the floor open to questions. People are already piling in their questions and I see some really sure. good ones and I want to make sure we get to those. Mm -hmm. um, two questions. I'm going to give them to you at the same time. How, what is, how important is it to learn Hebrew and what, uh, how much should you, how much should you value that? Like how hard should you go to learn Hebrew when you get here? And also I wanted to know if you could tell us a little bit about your specialty in the medical technical, in the medical tech world. And I, you told us about the businesses that you work with, but you didn't quite tell us what you do, what your daily responsibilities are and uh, how, and a little bit about the uh, job sure. responsibility part of that. Sure. So in terms of Hebrew, uh, one man's opinion, uh, I think it's important, maybe very important for long-term. Uh, having said that, some people have a knack for languages and other people don't. Uh, you know, it's just, and, and the older you get, the harder it is. Uh, I arrived in Israel at age 22. I had been on the NGD year course program, so I had exposure to Hebrew. I learned it pretty well. And for many years, I worked in Hebrew and there was, you know, all day. That's all. I mean, it was every, everything in writing was in Hebrew. Every meeting was in Hebrew. You know, that, that's the world that I lived in. Uh, so I learned Hebrew pretty well, but it was because I was immersed in it. It wasn't because I sat at home and read a book and studied it. You kind of have to put yourself into the immersion. Um, you know, having said that, I have a, quite a number of friends who they're in their 60s and they've lived in Israel for 30, 40 years and they never really learned Hebrew very well and they do just fine, you know? So, you know, it's a uh, you know, it's, it's not a showstopper by any stretch. It's not a necessity, but I view it as a important uh, uh, thing that the better your Hebrew is, the more you will understand the world you live in. And it's everything from the radio to television to, you know, plays and movies and, you know, informal conversations in the street, you know, work stuff, you know, it's just kind of across the board. It's just a thing that helps a ton. Uh, and uh, it's not easy. Uh, but the uh, but if you put the an, an investment of time in, and put yourself in situations where you really need need it, then you'll you will learn it. My impression is that it's a lot harder today than it was in 1979. When I made Aliyah in 1979. Uh, you know, there was no high tech world in Israel, there was no Western facing part of the economy. So you kind of had to uh, hunkered out and, and, and learn the language that you were going to have to work in. In today's world, it's a lot easier to be a you know, computer programmer and work for some high-tech company, not really need to learn Hebrew. Uh, so uh, that's a, a little bit of a, a handicap of having English be your first language is that it makes it a lot easier to just use that crutch and rely on English for your whole life, no matter where you go, whether you go to Korea or Poland or Israel. Uh, in terms of your question about what I do, uh, I invest my own personal uh, money in startup companies. I join the boards of those companies and I'm an active board member. In a few cases, I'm chairman of the board. Uh, these are all areas that I know a lot about because I've been in this field for almost 40 years now. Um, and if we are successful, uh, then the company eventually uh, either goes public or more likely gets acquired by one of the big uh, players in the medical device business. And all the investors and the employees who get stock options uh, make money. And if we're not successful for whatever reason, which happens actually a majority of the time, uh, then the investors lose their money and the employees, their stock options end up being worthless and they you know, move on to the next, uh, the next deal. And at any point in time, I'm generally involved with 10 companies. The average span of time that I'm involved with each company is between five and 10 years the time that I get involved until it either succeeds or fails. Uh, and uh, so on average, every year, one or two companies in my portfolio either succeeds or fails. And then I look for, you know, one or two new companies to invest and join the board of. Great. Thank you so much. I have a ton more questions, but I'm going to open the floor. First question from Mika Levin. Um, I mentioned to a friend the term scale in Israel. And he laughed. Can anything scale in Israel? 
Yeah, sure. There's a number of companies that can scale. Um, uh, it's a very hard thing to do, not just in Israel, by the way, but uh, anywhere. If I look at the worldwide medical device world, you know, all around the world, and I think of uh, the last 30 years, uh, how many companies have gone from startup to what I would call fully scaled. There's probably only a half a dozen companies in the world that have done that. Uh, Intuitive Surgical, which was the pioneer of, uh, uh, of uh, robotic surgery, uh, ha has done that. Um, you know, and, there's, and there's a few others that are not quite as much, but, ha but, but have done that. But what happens, at least in the medical device business, is that if you've got something that's really, really good uh, and that customers want, there's an inevitable gravity towards this um, uh, uh, desire on the part of acquirers to acquire the company and a desire on the part of the investors to sell the company in order to realize a return on their investment. And so what generally happens is that somewhere along the way, either when you're at the end of clinical trials or at the beginning of commercialization, or you're even at the beginning of scaling up that commercial effort, somebody like a Johnson & Johnson or an Abbott Labs or Baxter uh, Healthcare or Boston Scientific or somebody like that comes along and says, whoa, what you have fits into our company perfectly. We'll pay you a premium to buy it from you. The same thing happens in a lot of fields. It happens, uh, I'm not a high-tech expert for you know, computers and internet and AI and all the rest, but I observe the, those markets. And I think the same thing generally happens in those markets. Every once in a while, a company comes along like a checkpoint uh, and you know, stays independent and scales it up on their own. Uh, but even sometimes those companies eventually do get acquired. Uh, it's you know, not, not unheard of. So there certainly is an opportunity uh, in Israel, like there is in other places, to scale. But, uh, and this is not a uniquely Israeli phenomenon, there are a lot of pressures, uh, if, you are, if you actually have a successful product, to not scale it, but to sell it to somebody else for them to scale it, because that's why God created these big companies. These big companies have you know, lots of sales reps. I'll give a, a real case study. I was on the board of Mazor Robotics, uh, an Israeli spinal robotic surgery company. Uh, and we grew the company to about $80 million a year in revenue, uh, which is you know, a, big, uh, a big business by Israeli medical device standards, but still very early on in our commercial effort. And Medtronic came along about two years ago uh, and acquired the company. Uh, and uh, th this was a good outcome for all involved. They are continuing to invest. You know, Mazor is now a unit within Medtronic. They've invested heavily in Mazor. The employment in Israel has gone up. Mazor has uh, access to a thousand sales reps all around the world that sell spinal implant uh, stuff. And that spurs the growth of the robotic surgery component of the Medtronic uh, 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 bag of products. So this is a, uh, a, a good thing. Uh, it's very hard uh, to scale any company in anywhere in the world, you know, all the way up to a big cap company. And, and as a result, there are very few that, uh, that do it like Intuitive Surgical. Great, thank you. Question from Rabbi Feldman. What are the elements you look for that would indicate it might be a high growth company as an employee or as an investor? That's, a, that's a, the $64,000 question, and it's really, really hard to know. Um, uh, and, uh, you know, even for somebody who's skilled in a particular field and who knows the landscape and who knows the players and the competition and, you know, everything about it, it's really hard to pick who's going to win a year or five or 10 years from now in a particular field. It, it just really is hard. Having said that, even though it's hard, at the end of the day, we all have to make those judgments and we have to think through how ready is the market, how competitive is the technology, how good is the team, how solid is the syndicate of investors behind this, uh, how close is the company to market, how is it doing relative to its competitors. And I mean, essentially what I'm suggesting is make sure that this is an important consideration as you're looking at a new job. Don't just look at the job, but look at the company overall, because if you do pick right, and let's say you pick the absolute wrong job, but you're in the absolute right company and you're good, 
within six months, you'll have a different job. Don't worry about it. There's going to be, you know, new jobs being created every day in a growing company. So you'll have lots of opportunity. If on the other hand, you pick the exact right job in the exact wrong company that never goes anywhere, even though you do a fantastic job and you are great, you're never going to go anywhere because the company's never going to go anywhere. You, you have to kind of look and say, do I want to be on this ship? Is the, is the, does this ship have the potential to go to a place that's exciting? And your job on the ship is part of it, but what you, you should care a lot about, you know, your uh, uh, point of view about how well suited that ship is to go and be successful and get where it wants to go. Could I ask a question? Sure. So I'm a currently an insurance agent at Allstate and I was considering making an, making Aliyah at some point. Do they need more insurance agents in Israel or should I consider a different career? Do they even have Allstate in Israel? I mean, I was considering maybe like um, investment, you know, like Morgan Stanley or something like that in the near future. But the thing is, what would you recommend as a career in Israel? If I were to make uh, I wish I could answer your question, but I don't, I know very little about the insurance business in Israel. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm I know there are, that there are a lot of insurance companies in Israel. I'm sorry? I'm not saying I would do it forever. That's what I happen to do now. They reached out to me. They hired me. And it's not necessarily I do it forever. What kind of career would you recommend? Let's say I made Aliyah and I decided that that's not working in Israel. That's good for here. What would I do? Like, what would you recommend that's something I could switch to? Uh, well, uh, I, I, I don't have enough information to go on because uh, I'm not sure what you like to do and what you're good at. But well, I'm I very good at sales. I have I a very, I have an excellent record on sales. That's why they reached out to me. What okay, I can tell so you I'll is that let Michael finish his um, answer, and then we're going to move on to the next question. So no what problem. I can tell you is that there are a lot of uh, companies in Israel that need um, uh, English speakers who are good at sales. Uh, there are, you know, very vibrant parts of the uh, startup world, a uh, startup world here in um, a whole bunch of areas, fin FinTech. My, uh, my niece is married to a guy who works for PayPal, which has a big uh, group here. There's uh, a whole bunch of American companies have big uh, uh, workforces in Israel. And they're, 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 it's, it's a very rich ecosystem uh, of interesting jobs, but it's hard for me to be able to give you specific advice because I just don't know enough about you. But we could take that offline if you'd like. Thank you, Michael. Chaya, if you could just mute your microphone so that we don't have any background noise, that would be- Of course, I promise. But could I just ask- um, No, wait, we're going to move on to the next. We're going to move on to the next person so that somebody else can have a chance to ask a question. We have a question from Alisa. How do you actually access the potential of growth within a company? Oh, how do you assess it? Um, it's like what I had said uh, to Jonathan, which is you should look at the uh, competitive landscape, look at the market, uh, and uh, develop a point of view about the competitiveness of this company to compete in this area. Uh, if you wanted, you know, for example, if somebody came along today and said, oh, I have invented the next Facebook. I've got an app that's better than Facebook for social networking. Uh, you know, it does this, that, and the other thing. I would be very skeptical about whether anybody is going to be able to develop uh, a, a truly uh, competitive system with Facebook in today's world. Facebook has a little bit of a lead relative to uh, all of their small competitors. That doesn't mean that there's no room in social networking and that there's, there's probably a lot of room there, but you just have to uh, you know, look very uh, critically at uh, the position that the company is in. How many competitors do they have? How far along are they? Do they have good, strong investors in the company uh, who will carry the company for the required amount of time to get to where they need to go? Uh, these are all things that you can learn and know before making a decision. And um, like I said to Jonathan, it's hard to really know. It's, it's a very... Uh, uh, it's, it's a little bit of a guess, uh, but you want to make that guess in, a, in, 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 in as informed a fashion as possible. And that will raise the chance that you make the right guess and not the wrong guess. Great. Um, 
a note from Ephraim. There are plenty of Israelis here in Haifa who watch and follow the Champions League. He wanted you to know that. That's uh, good. All I was saying is that watching the Champions League is not something that only Israelis do. I think <laughs> they do it in Croatia and they do it in Finland and they do it everywhere. <laughs> uh, question on culture from Elisa. How did you deal with the less pleasant aspects of Israeli culture that are especially hard for newcomers? Pushy or rude people, noise everywhere. Um, did it ever discourage you? Did those things ever discourage you from staying put in Israel? Those things were, always were and remain discouraging, uh, but they were never a, uh, uh, a factor in a decision that I made about where to live. Uh, so it, it, it just irritates me to no end, you know, to go up to the Kinneret and see garbage on the shoreline or to run through Parker Yarkon on a Sunday morning, which I do just about every Sunday morning, and see the garbage left over from, you know, the crowded park from Shabbat, which gets cleaned up very nicely, by the way, by Iriat Tel Aviv. So, you know, kol um, You know, it, uh, it, uh, it is, you know, never fun to be on a bus and have somebody accost you and, you know, you know tell you whatever it is about what you did that they think is not appropriate, you know, meddling in your business or whatever it is. Those things are not pleasant. Uh, uh, but, uh, you know, yeah, well, I, for me, they were never a swing factor about where I was going to live. Uh, kind of like, uh, you know, who the current president of the United States is or who the current prime minister of Israel is also was not a swing factor for me about where I want to live because those things tend to be temporary and, you know, uh, eventually they change. Uh, I will say that some of the things that are uh, irritating, like, you know, aggressive behavior and litter and noise and stuff like that, believe it or not, you probably don't believe it, they're actually a lot better than they were in 1979. <laughs> and I attribute that to the fact that, is, you know, it, in, in the last 40 years, Israelis have traveled a ton overseas. Israelis go to Europe and they go all over the place and they actually, some of those things rub off on them a little bit. And it's actually quite a bit better uh, than it used to be, which gives me um, encouragement that over the next 40 years, uh, there's a, a good opportunity for it to get better as well. And uh, as someone who made you know, Aliyah two years ago, I wanted to weigh in on this. And my view is two, two, two part. One is that it's all about your expectations. And if you expect Israel to be like America, then yes, you're going to be very disappointed and frustrated. And uh, no, it's not. And the second thing is, it's like, uh, you know, when you marry someone, so you love them uh, for their qualities. And there's always going to be things that don't uh, fit exactly in the box. And, uh, but you look at the larger picture and you look at the things you do love. And because you do, you don't allow the things that might rub you in a different way to get to really get to you. It's all part of one package. That's my uh, philosophy on it. Jonathan, my wife and I, whenever we would go uh, frequently, uh, when we were in synagogue in Minneapolis, big synagogue, thousand families, there's always hundreds of people there on a Shabbat morning. I would look around and these are people that you know, because they're your community, you know, not everybody, but you know a lot of the people. And I would lean over to my wife every once in a while and say, is there anybody in this room you'd rather be married to? And these are people you know. You're not just judging them based upon how good they look that particular day. They, you know their personalities. You know their foibles. And we'd both look around. We'd look at each other and say, no, we like what we got right now. Thank you very much. <laughs> That's funny. Um, I'm, I'm going to ask you a closing question. I had wanted to ask you, actually, if you had seen major differences in growth and changes between 1979 and today in Israel, but you answered that, um, which I think is, which I think is um, sort of exciting for the future for someone like me who just moved here two years ago and uh, wonder if I have children here, if their experience will be different than my experience, and I'm sure that it will. But um, the last question, since nobody else has any others, is except we have one person who wants to know if they can have your email address, but we sure. can get to that after. Um, what makes you, um, first of all, how did you get into your business? 
Um, because I assume that you don't start off being a board member at the age of 22 or right out of right out the gate. So what made you sort of eligible to be a board member and what were some of the jobs and practices and skills that you learned that made you um, the person most capable for the job that you have today? So uh, out of business school, uh, I got a job as a product manager in a startup company in Minneapolis, uh, which was a, a <clears throat> which turned into one of the leading interventional cardiology companies, a company called SciMed Life Systems. And during that eight-year period uh, from when I joined uh, to when we sold the company to Boston Scientific, the company grew from 30 employees to 1,000 employees. I started off as a product manager, did a good job, got promoted to be director of marketing, then vice president of marketing. And after we were acquired by Boston Scientific in 1995, I was promoted to be the president of the cardiology division of Boston Scientific, which is based in, which was the SciMed business, which was based in Minneapolis. And I did that for five years. So when I left Boston Scientific in uh, 2000, at the age of 42, uh, I actually had quite a bit of experience in managing uh, growth and uh, you know large scale and startup uh, activities in in the medical device business. And over the two years that I was, uh, first two years after I left Boston Scientific, where I didn't really know whether I wanted to get back into an operating role or what I wanted to do, I tried a number of different things. And what I enjoyed doing the most was being involved with startup companies. Uh, in that first couple of years, I started a company called Velocimed with two friends of mine, and I invested in and joined the boards of a couple of other ones. And I woke up one day uh, about two years after leaving Boston Scientific, and I said to myself, self, this is what I like doing. I like doing the whole startup thing. And so that's what I have been doing uh, ever since. Uh, and I'm blessed that I've got the experience and the connections and the financial resources to do it the way that I want to do it. Uh, and I pinch myself every morning uh, because I know that I'm blessed and very lucky to be able to do it the way I want to do it. Including the decision eight years ago to move back to Israel in my mid fifties. You know, that's not typically something that somebody does in their mid fifties. You move countries and move languages and, 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 and all that. But I was pretty comfortable that once my wife got an offer from Tel Aviv University uh, to, uh, you know, be on the faculty that, you know, if she was able to make that move, that I would be able to make the move actually, in a sense, much easier than her, because I knew that there was a very rich ecosystem of interesting technology companies, early stage technology companies in Israel. And I was pretty confident that I'd be able to get involved with the ones that made, uh, that I thought I'd be able to make the biggest contribution to. And that's in fact how it's worked out. So I've got nothing to complain about. Thank you so much. There, there was a last question, but I know you answered this already, but I just want to make sure Ken knows that I'm seeing his question. He wants to know where you feel more at home today, Israel or the U.S. I know you said that you feel equally at home in both places. So if you want to have something more, you can add on. No, equally at home in both places, differently at home in both places. Uh, uh, if you're looking for it to be identical, then for me at least it's not. Uh, but uh, I feel uh, you know, equally at home in different ways in each country because I have different sets of friends. It's a different language. It's uh, different newspapers, different political things going on, different, uh, you know, a lot of things are very different. Uh, but you know, at the end of the day, the question is comfort, comfortable. You know, you can have two different chairs that you are comfortable in, but they feel different. And it's that, that's the kind of, uh, so that's at least my personal reaction. And my wife's also uh, to being in Israel or being in the U.S. Mr. Burke, I have a question for you. And Shana, if you let me be heard. Shana, if you still let me be heard. And this is an important question for me. You want to be like that, be like that. But my question isn't for you. I sent it to you privately and you said, let's talk later. I did not send it to you. I wanted to be asked. You are asking everyone's question and you're trying to silence me the whole time. I have a right to ask this question. You will not silence me just because you're jealous of me. Take your jealousy elsewhere. Mr. Berman, I have a question. This is important to me. I have considering making Aliyah and I would, I would like to go to university in Israel. The question is, do I need, do they, um, do they teach in English or would I have to be fluent in Hebrew first? Uh, it depends which program you're in. 
Uh, so I'm saying, are there any English programs or just or all, everything's in Hebrew? There are English programs. It depends upon which university. Uh, the Bain uh, Chumi, the, uh, what's it called in English? The, uh, um, uh, in Herzliya, what's the, the English name for the Bain Chumi? IDC, International. The IDC does teaching in, in English. Uh, some of the universities have English programs, uh, but you'll have to look at each university to find out which ones, uh, you know, allow instruction in English and which ones not. But the... I mean, if I want to, yeah, I'm sorry. If I wanted to go to Bar-Ilan or the Hebrew me, University, Hiya. that's... Finishing our program, Mike offered to be in touch with you. Our policy is generally people don't ask questions directly. They put it on the chat. So thank you for your questions. Shannon's going to wrap up now. Okay, thank you so much. And um, Michael, uh, thank you so much for being with us. This was great. My pleasure. There, this was, I think that you spoke very succinctly, beautifully. You answered all of the questions nice and tight and direct, directly. Um, there were a couple of people who were looking for your email address. What's the yeah. best way? Feel free to share that with them. Uh, I, I mean, I, I may not be immediately responsive, but I will be responsive. Okay, so um, whoever would like Michael's uh, email address can reach out to me on Facebook and um, and I'll actually put my details here in the chat for anybody. You can find me on Facebook. You can also find me on Instagram. And um, I also posted that the recording of tonight will be on the Jewish Matters podcast on Spotify, Apple, or Google. You can find it there. Perfect. Um, so, yes. Thank you, Michael, so much for joining us. My pleasure. Great. And I'm sure people have a good week, everybody. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye. <laughs> no. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Folks, stay tuned. Uh, we'll let you know what's going on in the coming weeks. Uh, if we can have <laughs> well. And uh, otherwise, we'll be. Uh, <laughs>